Wonderful. We began the service with a mutual exhortation, and we have just heard one in light of the subject we've been giving so much attention to for a couple of months now, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for that. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles again this morning to the text for our Lord's Day morning series. It's in the book of Jude, and we're going to be reading together beginning in the 17th verse. The book of Jude and verse 17. What we're reading begins by referring to us as the beloved. That is a reference to our being loved of God and especially God the Father. You, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what words were those that need to be remembered by us this morning? Very much in keeping with some of the text that was just sung to us. The apostles were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Now, these are the ones who cause divisions. And that's referring to divisions among the people of God. These people are worldly-minded and devoid of the Holy Spirit. But you, and here it is again, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Again, which we have just heard sung about, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. After several weeks of really giving very serious consideration to this, I've come to the conclusion that this should be the final message in our series on keeping ourselves in the love of God. I went back this week and attempted to count the sermons. I believe there have been right about 50 of them. And while I was thinking and praying about this, these words came to my mind, words of the Lord to Moses when after the exodus out of Egypt, the people were awaiting God's pleasure, and he said to Moses, you have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn and go north. Well, I don't know what going north means when it comes to the application of that, but I uh, thought it was interesting that those words came to my mind. So what we're going to do this morning is to circle the mountain, so to speak, one last time. I want to put the entirety of the series together as we typically do at the end of a series. And I want you to know that this is not being truncated uh, here before the time. We really have completed what the passage itself is directing us to do. Obviously, there's far more that you could enlarge upon, but we have given sufficient attention, I think, not only to the admonition, but 
to the ways in which God says to us that we are supposed to keep ourselves in the love of God. The text that you have in the worship guide this morning is one that we will come to at the end of the message. It actually will be the text for the fifth and last point of the sermon this morning. The first four points are going to consist of the four sections to this series. And again, it has to do with keeping ourselves in the love of God, just as we're admonished in that 21st verse. This is a series that began, I suppose, as most topical series do, with a pastor's awareness, growing awareness of a need among the people or even a problem. And I became concerned back in 2022 about the possibility that we ourselves were faced with an increasing difficulty and one that's very common to Christian people, certainly not unique to our church. But that is the difficulty that the more that you actually learn about God, who He is and what He's actually like, the more you see of yourself. And the experience is an Isaiah 6 experience. Woe is me. My eyes have seen the Lord. It reduces you to a state of great insecurity, humiliation, great concern about your position and standing before the Lord. Now, people have, they have experience of that to varying levels. But I think that you will find that that is the case in ministries where the ministry is so thoroughly scriptural and it is so right in its presentation of God that it does away with all of the flippancy in people when it comes to their relationship to God. For the first time, it really breaks upon them. They come to understand something of the magnitude of actually attempting to present themselves before God and to know that they will be accepted. The more we read of His holiness and of His wrath and of His judgment, the more unhappy we can become. And ministries that are not thoroughly scriptural, but where people seem to always just be bubbling and there seems to be nothing but this effervescence, those kinds of things can appear to be very, very attractive. I want you to understand that I'm not saying that as Christian people we're not to be joyful. We actually are. And our emphasis for the year, as you remember, is may the Lord give us an increase in love and joy and peace. But the fact is, if you read your Bible from cover to cover and you do that faithfully and you listen carefully to the Word of God actually accurately expounded, you can find yourself less confident 
in the Lord's presence. And you can be beset with a certain insecurity that because of your own knowledge of your inconsistency and your ongoing sinfulness. Now folks, one of the great dangers of this is then that we develop an attitude toward God. And we actually project upon Him an attitude toward us that makes us increasingly uncomfortable with Him. Or even worse, and is done broadly in evangelicalism today, we can attempt to reimagine God and make Him in our own image. We want Him to be like the way we want to feel. These are very, very serious errors. And the only way for those to be corrected and for us to come to the security that God would have for us is really by doing just what this passage says. Keep yourself in the love of God. And our series then began with two introductory messages. And those were designed to help us understand scripturally what that means. And again and again, we've noted what it doesn't mean. You have to clear the rubble out, the misunderstanding out. It doesn't mean to keep ourselves loving him. We need to do that, but that's not what this passage is talking about. And it certainly is not talking about our keeping God loving us. That we live with such perfection, so flawlessly, that now He will love me. That also is a thoroughly unscriptural idea. What this has to do with is our keeping in view God's love for us. Beloved, beloved, it said it twice in what we just read. Keep yourselves in that. Keep that perspective on God. Everything you read in the Bible, all of the passages that you find God revealed in, keep this in mind. You are told overarchingly that God is love. And keep this perspective that you, of all people in the world, because you are in Christ, if you have placed your saving faith in Him, because you are in Christ, you are everlastingly loved. In fact, what you discover in Scripture, and I'll note this in just a moment, is that that love did not begin when you put your faith in Christ, that actually you were loved by God in eternity past. And the reason you put your faith in Christ is because you were loved that way. That's the explanation. It's a marvelous thing. After those two introductory messages, we settled into, by my count, 22 sermons that were a section in themselves. And those 22 were an attempt to follow the directive that you have in verse 20. Would you look at verse 20 again? In this passage, there are three means or ways that are given to us 
for keeping a right perspective on God. And the first of them in verse 20 is to build yourself up on your most holy faith. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And what that's talking about is the Christian faith, that is the body of teaching that is the object of our faith, that was given to us to believe. It's not talking about our faith subjectively, that we believe in God. It's not talking about building up my faith. It's talking about building myself up on the foundation of the truth of God revealed to us as the Christian faith. Those 22 messages began with four passages. And I chose those passages for this reason. I think we all realize that when you really are fearful about something, the best thing you can do is just face it. Look at it in its very worst. If you're concerned, for instance, about financial collapse, face it. Face the very worst of it. What would you do if everything collapsed financially? Just look at it. Look it right in the face. And I felt that one of the things that would be most important for us to do then would be to look at some of those passages in the Old Testament that most cause us to tremble and fill us with insecurity about how God feels toward us. Let's look them right in the face. And there was a sequence to those four. The first of them was Moses calling at the burning bush when God revealed himself to Moses in a situation in which God's holiness was so displayed that Moses had to take his sandals off his feet. The very ground on which he was standing was holy ground, God said. A lot of Christian people hardly know what to do with a passage like that when it comes to their own approach to God. The second of the passages that we went to was after the children of Israel then were led out of Egypt and they came to Sinai and God gave them the law. We used the record of that in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And on that occasion, as you remember, God caused the whole mountain to tremble And the top of that mountain was covered with dark smoke, the kind of smoke you have when a great furnace is opened. There were lightnings and thunders and the sound of a great trumpet, and it caused the people to so tremble in fear that they said to Moses, Moses, you talk to God. We can't listen to him any longer. If we listen to him, we're going to die. I think that's the way a lot of the Lord's people feel when they read those passages. Like, I can't listen to that. I didn't come to church for that. That scares me to death. And we find ourselves avoiding those passages. No, no, look right at them. The third of those passages took us then to when the people actually so transgressed that they became the objects of God's wrath and the threat of his judgment. And it occurred at that same mountain. Moses went up to the mountain and received the law of God. What are the people doing down at the foot of the mountain? God had just given to them the Ten Commandments. 
And what they did is make a golden calf. God had commanded them, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any likeness or any graven image of anything in the heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters of the sea to worship and bow down to them. And they did the exact opposite. They disobeyed the first two great commandments. How's God going to respond to that? Read about it in Exodus 32 to 34. That's what we did. And the fourth of those passages took us to over 850 years later when finally the hammer of God's judgment came down upon that nation crushingly. Because of all of those centuries of insisting on idolatry and disobedience. And we went to the book of Lamentations in the third chapter that tells us even in the midst of that, God's compassions do not fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Jeremiah said. So, folks, we took up those four passages as representative of those four situations. When we read in the Scripture and we really get a sight of God's holiness. When there is something in the Scripture that we read that reveals to Him, reveals Him in such a way that we think, I can't read that. That, that is frightening. Or when we actually encounter those passages where He is angry and He is dealing with people judgmentally and we're very aware that we deserve the same. Or even worse, when we realize that we are experiencing as God's people now, a chastisement from His hand that is heavy, and there may, no, there may be no reversing it, we actually may have lost such and such forever. As the nation Israel did at that point. And folks, what I want just to conclude that little section with this morning by way of application and admonishment to us is we may not like to read passages like that, and if we read them, we may do so quickly. And if they have any impression upon us at ever, at all, you know, we we're anxious for that impression to leave, so we will feel better. We're just like those people, but we must not avoid those passages, and we must not reimagine God. We must use them just the way we're told. Use those passages to build yourself up on your most holy faith. Those passages are not apart from our most holy faith. Those passages are about as deep as it goes. It goes into the nature and essence of God. You have no foundation if you have to dismiss those building blocks. And what we have to do, and I want to give you two really important applications at this point to help. And we did deal with these numbers of times as we went through those passages. But folks, we do need to remind ourselves again and again, this is part of building ourselves up on our most holy faith. We need to remind ourselves again and again, God has not changed at all. He is the same, tell me, He's the same yesterday and he has not changed. 
It isn't that in the Old Testament he is such and such a God, but in the New Testament now he's a different God. That is not so. And there are certain passages in the New Testament that it's very important for us to keep in mind. Passages about the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 8. I want to give to you three of these passages. Romans, these are passages that come often to my mind when I'm tempted with that thought that somehow God has changed and therefore when I read the Old Testament I don't like it as much. One of those passages is Romans chapter 1 verse 8 that says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And it's talking about our very culture today. Another of those passages is John 3.36. That's the end of the wonderful passage that speaks to us of God so loving the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's the 16th verse. Two verses later, God says to us in that passage that he that believeth on the Son is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. People who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, it isn't that they're waiting until a final judgment and then they're condemned. They're condemned already. The last verse of that chapter, the 36th verse, says the wrath of God abides on them. What wrath is it? Read your Old Testament. It's that wrath. And the third passage that's very helpful to me is the last verse of Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, our God is a consuming what? Just like I read about in my Old Testament. Dear people, it is very important that we not reimagine God. If you reimagine God, you're going to reinvent Christianity. And you will turn it in your worship, in your conception, in your viewpoint of sanctification, you will turn it to where it is where there is error mixed in it because you have reimagined God. Take him just as he revealed in scripture. The question, folks, isn't whether God has changed. He hasn't. The question is, who is it who's going to bear that wrath for us? And what the New Testament presents us with is that God sent his Son in all of his holiness and all of his majesty, and that the Son of God himself took all that wrath. That's what Romans 3 is teaching. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Just keep reading that book. You'll come to the third chapter. What did God do? He sent his Son to be the propitiation. A word that has reference to satisfying or appeasing someone who's alienated, someone who's even angry. The Lord Jesus Christ propitiated the wrath of God against us. He took the wrath that was due to us. And that's what enables us. You remember when we were all dealing, as everyone else was, with covid And our great concerns about that. And you remember that we memorized together the 91st Psalm. 
What a tremendous consolation we found in that, that the Lord is our rock and our refuge, that He covers us with His feathers. We take shelter under His wings. Dear people, what is it that gives us such an unassailable refuge in God except that He is just this way? Nothing can touch Him. There is no enemy. Not Satan, not the demons, not the wrath of men. Nothing can threaten God's saints covered with His wings because He is exactly the way He has always been. He is majestic and powerful. And He is a burning fire. And in Christ, His wrath against you personally, individually, has been so appeased that you can present yourself before Him and He calls you His beloved. And He will not allow anything to touch you. You are the apple of His eye. It's like children and they just are so secure because their daddy is big and strong. And because there are certain things that he hates. And those are the very things that would threaten them, and he hates them. And he will not allow them to be harmed. Keep yourselves in the love of God by using passages like that the way God intends. And then within those 22 sermons, we move secondly to two New Testament passages. And I want to ask you to turn to those with me, please. The first of them was in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to read together verses 5 through 8. Romans chapter 5. After those four passages in that sequence, all the way from the holiness of God, right through to even when judgment falls... Don't avoid, don't avoid God as He reveals Himself in those passages. Build yourself up in your most holy faith with those passages. And when you come to the New Testament, believe these verses with all your heart. Verse 5, I'm going to start in the middle of the verse. The love of God. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us when we put our faith in Christ. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, that is God's appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps in this life, this is the way it does work, for a good man, someone didn't even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we came to this New Testament passage, and we used this passage for several sermons that had essentially as their, as their opening admonition, or I should say their opening assurance, and it is this, that it is certain that God the Father loves you. If you are in Christ, that is certain. And the knowledge and even the sense of that is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And folks, the thing that the Holy Spirit uses in this passage, there are other things as well, 
But really at the heart of the center of it is this. You can be certain that God loves you. The Holy Spirit wants to assure you of that. And he does it this way. Not just by teaching us and magnifying for us that Christ died for us. That, that's true. That's in this passage. But that actually isn't the real cutting edge of it. The thing that ought to give you most certainty isn't just that Christ died for you. It's that you were of a certain character when he did. You weren't good at all. You were the ungodly. People out in the world might give their lives for somebody who's good. God commends his love to you in that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. So that very problem that we began with, that when I see God, when I really see him, when I read those passages, then I see myself as I am, woe is me. Yes, and would you now build yourself up on your Christian faith? It is absolutely certain that God loves you because when you were in that very condition, he sent his son to die for you and to bear his righteous wrath against your sin. It's fabulous. Use Romans 5, verses 5 through 8. Look at the ninth verse. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from what? From that very wrath through him. And the second passage in the New Testament that we went to when it came to building ourselves up on our most holy faith is in the eighth chapter of this same book. Would you turn there with me, please? Three more chapters. And if you would look with me, please, at verses 31 to 39. And the reason that we went to this chapter is because this is the greatest security chapter in all the New Testament. This passage is assuring us of our standing before the Lord despite the two things that most shake our security. What are they? One, our remaining struggle with sin. That's the first half of the chapter. And two, the sufferings of this present time. That's the second half of the chapter. Those are the two two great things that give us insecurity, that call in question God's love for us. And the way that God deals with that is to say to us at the end, look, it's beyond all question that I love you. When you look at your remaining sinfulness and when you're taking stock of the things that you're having to deal with in this life that are the nature of burdens and trials and even suffering or persecution, and there's this little nagging question that emerges in your mind, I just want to tell you emphatically at the end of this chapter, verses 31 to 39, it's beyond question that I love you. And the way God does that is by presenting us with five questions. And if you've never marked those marks of punctuation, I would suggest you do it now. At the end of verse 31, question mark. At the end of verse 32, question mark. The end of the first sentence in verse 33, question mark. The end of the first sentence of verse 34, question mark. Or the first phrase of verse 34. Verse 35, end of the first sentence, question mark. 
And then you have another question mark at the end of verse 35, but that one is just really an expansion of what that fifth one was. My point is this, folks. God presents us. We, you know, we, we're starting to question God. God comes back and says, I'm going to question you. I'm going to ask you the big questions. We ask the little questions. If I, you know, if God really loved me, why did I run out of gas on the way to work? If, if God really loved me, why do I have to pray on my school bill every month? If God really loved me, why this or why not that? Now, folks, it isn't that those questions aren't important, but those are little questions. Here are the big questions. Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. How will he not also with Christ freely give you all things? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God elect, God's chosen? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Those are the big questions. And in every case, I let, you notice I had to leave out half the verse. Why did I do that? In order to get at the questions. Because in every case, the rest of the verse is stating something that is so certain that there's no question God says, I'll raise the question for you, but I'm telling you my love for you is beyond question because of these great certainties. Verse 31, if God is for us, and he is, the whole book of Romans to this point is testified to that, then who could possibly be against you? Well, the whole world could be against you, but it's talking about who could mount anything against you that is effectual in destroying you. They may burn your body. They may take all of your goods. But when it comes to you, the new person you are in Christ, the eternal life you possess, the life you will God with God in eternity, who can possibly mount any effectual opposition to you? And in fact, even those other things, the persecution and the loss, read your Bible. The only way any of that can happen is if God appoints it for your good. It isn't just that he's passive, and oh, now it happened, and he knows it happened, and he sympathizes with you that it happened, and it's okay, he'll figure out a way to fix that. No, 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 no. God appoints what happens. And he turns it always for the good of his people. The 8th chapter tells us that. All things work together for the good that God has determined. So folks, build yourself up on your most holy faith. Really, this week, this very week, before this day is out, you could end up questioning God's love for you. You may have come this morning with no sensation of it in your heart. And we all do. We're looking for feeling. God made us creatures like that. But God made us so that our feelings are to be affected primarily 
not circumstantially, but affected by our most holy faith, the things he says to us. And we put our faith in those things. And we do that, our feelings change. Take these passages. Remember Romans 5 and remember Romans 8. And when you begin to question, open to those passages and bury your heart in what God has revealed. And remember, he hasn't changed about it because he's the same what? Yesterday and today and forever. And it's just as true today as on those days that we woke up and we were exhilarated. Remember Pastor Boyd several times told us about a man that he had in one of his churches early in his ministry And Pastor Boyd would always use this illustration because he was trying to get the very point across this morning that I'm making, but he said that this man had testified, his wife had testified that he woke up every morning when he shaved, he'd sing, oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day, everything's going my way. Pastor Boyd would say, that's not true. That's superficial. You're going to have trials. You're going to have sorrows. You're going to have times when you're heavy laden. And then are you going to sing flippantly like that to the mirror? Probably not. You're going to be like some of those psalms that you read when you're just on your face before God crying out for relief and help and grace. Folks, there is a very flippant, light approach to the Christian life that is not scriptural at all. And when you're heavy laden, the thing to do isn't to whistle a happy tune. It is to build yourself up on passages like this. May God help us to do that. That brought us then to the second of the admonitions in Jude 20 when it comes to keeping ourselves in the love of God. And that admonition was this, to pray in the Holy Spirit. And of course, we just saw in chapter 5 that it is the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God out within our hearts. So our relationship to the Holy Spirit and His ministry like that is essential for our being able to keep this perspective of the Lord. And that began for us 13 sermons. This was on June 25th last year. We began 13 sermons that had to do with praying in the Holy Spirit, and we added this to it, in order to perceive the love of God for us. Pray in the Holy Spirit in keeping with what that passage is talking about. Let's find out scripturally about the Spirit of God's ministry in helping us to perceive God's love for us. And what we reflected on, first of all, was what is told to us in John 14 and John 16, those two chapters especially, in which the Lord Jesus Christ was revealing to the disciples that He was going away But he said, I will pray the Father, and he will give to you, he will send to you another paraclete. 
another helper. He will be, listen to this, listen to the title, he will be the spirit of truth. And what he will do is he will receive from the Father. And what he hears, he will teach you. What he will especially do is magnify me to you. He will glorify me to you. I'm paraphrasing here a number of the the verses, but that's the point the Lord was making in those chapters. And what we discovered then from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that we need that kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've not received the spirit of the world, Paul said. We've received the spirit which is of God that we might come to know the things that are freely given to us of God. Including this great truth, God's love for us. The love for us extended in the person of His Son and demonstrated beyond all question by the work of His Son on the cross on our behalf. Folks, we have the passages. Follow this, please. We have the passages. I can read those Old Testament passages and do exactly what we're talking about this morning. I can read Romans 5. I can read Romans 8. But what we find out further in our Bible is the passages are not in and of themselves sufficient to entirely get a hold of this. I know that doesn't sound right because we do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture as a full revelation. But the problem is I am not capable of receiving the entirety of the depth and the ministry of that perfect revelation apart from the Spirit of God doing something to me. It isn't that He does something to the Bible. Bible's sufficient. He does something to me because I'm insufficient. What I need is to have the eyes of my heart enlightened. And as we saw the Apostle Paul prays for this, And you have an extended passage about this in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Excuse me, in the third chapter of Ephesians. It's wonderful. And we ended that 13 sermon mini-series in this by raising the question of what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. Four things. Let me go over them again. One, it means to pray as He is. He is the what spirit? He's the Holy Spirit. To pray in the Spirit is to pray as He is. It's to be a holy person. The way Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 2 is to lift up holy hands. I have no personal holiness, but by the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ, I can present myself before God cleansed by the blood. And I am called to a consecration of life, a holy life. We had a whole series about that in 1 Corinthians. And we are to be walking that path. It's to pray as He is. Secondly, it's to pray as He would. Romans 8 tells us when He prays, He prays the will of God. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying what I find in my Bible to be the will of God. 
And thirdly, we saw that it is often to pray according to His prompting. And you know what it is to have the Spirit of God prompt or urge your heart to pray. And fourthly, it's to pray by His empowering, His enabling. So in concluding this third point of the message, I want to ask you this question. If you're still really struggling about this matter, are you praying for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to it? Or are you relying entirely on more Bible reading and more Bible study, but without the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit to you? We all need that. David Martin Lloyd-Jones in his series on Ephesians made the comment that this kind of prayer is the most difficult thing that we ever do. Because he said it's the greatest thing we ever do. What does he mean by that? Explain it. The greatest thing you ever do is when you draw near to God. But that's the hardest thing you do. The Holy Spirit is the one who so magnifies Christ, His grace, your acceptance in Him, the mercy seat available to you, God's loving you in Christ, all these things, that you're enabled with great confidence to draw near. And finally, point four of this message, we moved on to the last of the admonitions that are ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God. And it is to wait anxiously for the mercy that will be revealed to us when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We began that series in October last year. We began with our failure to really anticipate Christ's coming. And then, folks, what did we move to and what did we have many, many sermons about? We had many, many sermons that were designed to raise and to help us with this question. It's the question of imminency. It's very difficult to wait anxiously for the Lord's coming if you're convinced in your mind it can't be today. In fact, it can't be for years yet. But what the Bible teaches is that there is a coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that is imminent. And that means it could be at any time. And we found that a portion of Matthew 24 teaches this. And we found in the last few weeks that 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 assure us of this. And they end by saying to us, you are not destined for the wrath of God that will come upon the earth in the coming tribulation period. You know full well about the day of the Lord. You know it comes as a thief in the night. You know it will come suddenly like birth pangs on a woman. And when it comes, it will come with destruction and they will not escape. But you, beloved, are not destined for the wrath of God. You are destined to obtain salvation. So that whether you sleep in the earth in Christ when that day comes, or whether you are alive when that day comes, you are going to be living together with the Lord. Wherefore, you ought to encourage one another with these words.
It'll help keep you in the love of God. It'll make you wait anxiously for Christ the way you wait for somebody that you are persuaded loves you beyond question. That will help you. That'll help us. Now, folks, with that in view, would you look please with me at 2 Corinthians and read with me together 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the last verse of that book. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We're concluding this series. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father in this verse, and the fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit, may all of those be with you all. All three members of the Godhead love us. The Lord Jesus Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for her. The last book of our New Testament presents us with the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and who, Revelation 1 verse 6 says, loves us, loves us, and loosed us from our sins in his blood. Jesus loves you. And the Holy Spirit loves you. Paul is going to end toward the end of Romans 15 by saying, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. The Holy Spirit loves you. But God the Father is presented in the Bible as the ultimate fount of all that love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The Father is the source of all of them. And He's blessed us that way according as He has chosen us in Christ, in love having predestined us unto sonship through Jesus Christ to himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In this the love of God is manifested, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in our worship and in our fellowship, we are to return love to all three members of the Godhead, but we are to eye the Father as loving us. We are to see him in no other light. Any other passages that cause us to tremble ought to be passages in which we take great refuge and ought to cause us to 
flee to the Father and not to fly from the Father. Read the center panel in your worship guide this morning from that wonderful book, Communion with God by John Owen. There's just a portion there that will be a blessing to you. Folks, I want to end this way. The primary threat to our keeping this perspective isn't certain passages we read in the Bible. And it isn't the slander of the devil, though the devil is the slanderer and he slanders God to us and us to God and us to one another. It's his constant work. But that is not the primary threat to this. And the primary threat to us most certainly isn't the trials of life. The primary threat to this is the toleration of known sin in our lives. That is the primary threat. The toleration of known sin. Men, would you please hear me carefully this morning? God the Father has loved you with an everlasting love. That will never change if you're in Christ. And it will triumph in the end. But to be very pointed this morning about the sins of our age, we as men are told in the book of Proverbs not to go near the door of a harlot. Proverbs says, avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn away from it. We are told that a whore is a deep ditch and that the adulteress hunts for the precious life. And if you approach the door of these fallen women and you enter into their pornography it will entirely sap you of any sense of God's favor and love for you. And you risk ruin. Proverbs says you will rue it because the day will come when you will give your strength to another. You will lose everything. You right now may be losing entirely your sense of the presence of God. It may be faded, it may be very dim, it may be almost impossible for you to feel any sense of that, and it's because of the intoxication of these things. And you will become an angry man, a bitter man, an impassive man, stony-faced, hard-hearted. You're like Solomon, you gave away your first love. Bible says there are two things Solomon loved. Solomon loved the Lord and he loved many strange women. And the Bible says the love for the women took him away from God. You're not strong enough to deal with that. And women, the scripture, ladies here, is so clear about the kind of character that ought to be true of women who want to be known as godly women. 
You are to be wise. You are to be prudent. You are to be self-controlled. You are to be a person who does not nurse sensuality. You're careful not to dress sensually. Let alone turn your worship into something sensual. If you're married, you are to be a lover of your husband and a lover of your children. And you are to keep the home diligently and not give any reason for the adversary to be able to bring reproach upon the cause of Christ. We are to be a holy people. And the more that we will look at God as He actually is and yield to that vision, the more we will be transformed into it. Glory by glory by glory. By the Spirit of the Lord, He'll do it. That is God's intention. And God's will this morning for you is that you return love to Him. That you stop questioning Him. That if there's something that is clogging the channel, that you deal with it, that you not tolerate those things in your life. And that you run to the Lord with your love and that you tell Him you want no other love. That you would not want any other kind of lover. That you want Him just as He's revealed in the Word. And you want Him just as He's extended Himself to you in Christ. And that you want the brethren and you want the sisters and you by the grace of God are waiting anxiously for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Loving Lord, thank you for all of your grace and blessing this morning. And all through this series, these many, many messages that we've enjoyed together. Gracious Lord, we acknowledge to you that we have profited so little because of our weakness, weakness of understanding, weakness of capacity to take in and to remember and to improve these things. But we ask today that you would return us to them, that again and again your Spirit might prompt us to return to these very passages, to look upon them fully, to turn our hearts to them fully, to embrace them, to believe them. And we pray that that faith would be the victory that overcomes everything. We praise you for it. We ask in Christ Jesus' precious name, amen. We're going to close this morning with the hymn with which we closed the very first sermon in that series. It's 613 in our large hymn book, the hardback hymn book, Hymns of Grace and Glory. There's no chorus to it, five stanzas. We're going to sing all five stanzas. I trust this morning, in fact, I know this morning that if our hearts are toward the Lord, that we will rejoice in all of these truths, that they'll minister great comfort and blessing to our hearts. Do you believe this, that no one is more secure than the loved ones of the Savior? And that's you. Let's stand together and sing.
think of that the next time something comes into your life that raises a question. His loving purpose solely is to preserve you pure and holy. Can there be any greater love? We're dismissed.